This is the word of God. Philippians 1, 27 through 30 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in any, anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. If you, if you haven't already, take your Bible out and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Today we actually come to the conclusion of chapter 1. Uh, 26 verses is what we've covered so far, and it's taken seven weeks. So I think you, that will tell you that we're moving quite slowly, and we're not apologizing for that. We're just trying to bite off a piece at a time and chew on it and let the Spirit of God speak to us not only objectively as a body, but also subjectively as individuals. And as a reminder, we started this series in Philippians back on February the 12th. February the 12th. The title of the series is The Joy-Filled Life. And there are only four brief chapters in this letter penned by Paul to the church at Philippi. Throughout the theme of this letter, or throughout, the theme is joy, joy. Paul mentions or alludes to joy 16 times, and he mentions Christ 50 times, which tells you that you're not going to have joy without Christ. Your joy is when you are in Christ. That's the beginning point for joy. Now, what makes this little letter to a church in Macedonia about joy so special? What is it? Well, Paul is writing this letter about joy from prison in Rome. Now put those two together. They're hard to fit together, aren't they? You'd never think of somebody who's under duress writing about joy. But that's exactly what he's doing. You might be wondering, how can someone who's locked up in a prison cell or in a, in a home write about this joy? Well, we have to understand what joy really means, biblically speaking. So let me share with you what that means. And really to understand what joy means, we first need to understand what happiness means. Because joy and happiness are not the same things. And in this world, mo most of us live for happiness. That's what the world lives for, happiness. I just want to have a happy experience when I go to that birthday party today. You know, I want a happy experience when I go meet with the boss. I'm hoping I'll get a raise. You're looking for happiness. That's not joy. And let me share with you what happiness is. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based upon some present circumstance. Its root form, happiness, is hap. And hap means happenings. It's basically conveying the idea of chance. Happiness is more of a chance experience than something you plan for. It may happen. It may not happen. And at times, happiness seems to be very elusive. Amen? Would you agree? But it's related to the delight or the satisfaction. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me take a drink. Well, maybe not. <coughs> Here we go. Ah. Excuse me. <coughs> So my foot got better, and in the same time, I started getting a little scratchy throat. <coughs> so the enemy would love for that to affect my preaching. It ain't going to happen. If we have to stay here until 3 o'clock to finish this thing, we will. Okay, so, all right. <coughs> Excuse me, getting back on track. So happiness is all about delight or satisfaction that's tied to an occasion, 
an event, a chance circumstance. This is the best that we can hope for if we're pursuing happiness. On the other hand, when we talk about joy, we're talking not about something that's related to chance at all. It's not. <laughs> it's not tied to circumstances or chance experiences. When we talk about joy, we're talking about a deep down confidence that, listen, all is well, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the problem. I can tell you right now that in my life at this time, I can assure you that life's not been joyful in terms of the world's understanding. There's no happiness in what I've been going through. I can promise you that. Yet the joy of the Lord remains, <laughs> remains excuse me, let me take one of these things. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I like your flavor better. I already put this one in my mouth, though. Okay. And, 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 and there's truth in what I'm saying. Listen, it doesn't matter what you're facing in life, what you're going through in life. It doesn't matter. The reality is you can still have joy. Paul's proving it to us in this letter. He's in prison, but he's writing about joy 15 times. <laughs> in this little letter, he uses the word joy. Joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the word mixed with trials, yet their hope remains on future glory. I'm never going to look away from what I know is coming and what I have in Christ right now, even though I go through trial and suffering. One of the greatest hindrances to joy is suffering. How many of you can understand that? Your body's suffering, and it's hard to be joyful. It is hard, but it can be done. I said to someone this past week when I was really low, and I said, you know, here's what I know at this point, because I was low. I said, I know that God is fully aware of what's going on inside of me. And he could be behind it, quite honestly. But here's what I know, that he's doing something. He's working in some way. I better hear what he's trying to say to me. I better learn from this experience. And that really is where I've focused my life the last five months. How can I grow? How can I learn? And there's joy in that. There's joy in that. Let me say this again. Joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. And as they receive and obey the word, which is mixed with trials, yet their hope is still set on future glory. Look, no event, no circumstance, no setback in this life should ever rob you of your joy in the Lord. Even death cannot rob you of joy. I appreciate Marshall coming in last minute. I mean, I literally last week at Saturday evening, I'm letting the elders know, guys, I've waited this long because I want to preach so bad in the morning this sermon. I can't do it. I can't stand. And the pain is too great to even focus. And Marshall said, I'll do it. Saturday night, he goes, I'll preach. And boy, he delivered a great message last week, didn't he? And I loved his honesty at the beginning where he paused and he said, let me get my thoughts together here. <laughs> uh, because it was thrown on him suddenly. But boy, I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit just really helped him with the message of the truth that's found in the Word of God. And he preached a great sermon. And he included death. Look, not even death can rob us. In fact, death is gain, right? So this thing about joy, it's awesome. Back in week one, I gave you this little statement. We found out that it was actually out of a child's song, a children's song, here it is, joy is the flag flying high above the castle of my heart, announcing that the king is in re residence there. Amen. Think about that in your life, okay? Next time you're feeling down, you need to, some joy, remember this. Joy is the flag that flies high above the castle of my heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. Amen? The verb to rejoice is used 74 times in the New Testament. The noun form of the word joy is found 59 times in the New Testament. In other words, joy is part and parcel of the Christian life. That's why we're in the series, The Joy-Filled Life. If you're a believer, you ought to be able to say, I live a joy-filled life. Not enough amens. 
I'm sorry. We got to get out of this thing where we're living for happiness like the world. We're not of this world. We're of the, you're, you're a citizen of heaven now. You have all things that Christ has right now. Have you not read the book of Ephesians that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? You've inherited the grace of God given to you that you might believe. You have the salvation of the Lord, the sanctification of the Lord. You're going to get the glorification of the Lord. <laughs> All of it, a work of God. Man, I want to preach so bad. <coughs> Excuse me. This is 180 from last week. Marshall <coughs> wanted to preach, <coughs> but didn't have enough time to develop the message. I developed the message and can't preach. <laughs> so we come today to this portion of chapter 1 where Paul addresses the Christian in their conduct, Christian conduct. For a moment, Paul turns away from looking at himself and talking about his own joy in the ministry to pleading and exhorting the church. He's no longer concerned about his situation He's only concerned about theirs. So he challenges them to look in their own hearts and see if there's real spiritual integrity. I believe God wants the same for us today. To add context to our text, let's remember that in the prior passage, Paul described his dilemma. He was caught between wanting to depart to be with Christ and wanting to stay and support and encourage and teach the church. He's caught in between. But he came to the conclusion, but I need to stay a little longer for your sake. So he was willing to, to stay as long as the Lord would have him here. And by the way, he didn't live a whole lot longer. From the time that he wrote this letter, he lived maybe two, three, possibly up to five years. And then he went home to be, be with the Lord. So this is a very real, in-your-face letter. This is real life that Paul's living, and he's trying to challenge the church. But the point that Paul will make in these four verses is that whether he lives or dies, whether he returns to Philippi ever again or not, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that the Philippian church walk in the character of conduct, which is essential in the Christian life, that they would live up to the measure that God has given them to live. No excuses, church, for not living up to the measure that God's given us by his word. God calls us to purity. He calls us to live a pure life. He calls us to demonstrate to this world a conduct that is befitting God himself. I didn't say, you didn't hear me say being perfect in it. Nobody in this room is perfect in this. But we don't lower the standard because we can't be perfect. We keep the same standard. Jesus Christ is our goal. That's why in Romans it tells us that we are to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. We don't change what the goal is. We don't try to lower ourselves so that we can feel better about ourselves. We still have the same goal, being conformed to the image of Jesus. And when we fall short, we know that we've already been covered by God, and we do confess because you want to keep that relationship where God wants it. But that doesn't mean that we're walking in sin, that we're now we're lost. We've lost our We've lost our way with God. You can fall, but you get up, and you keep going, but you pursue holiness. Amen? We pursue that. So here it is right here, this, this call to character of conduct in the Christian life. It's in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, not, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is saying, I'm concerned about you, church. It isn't important whether I come to you or not. What's important is that you live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ that saved you. In fact, he begins with the word, only let us, only. What he's saying is, this is first and foremost. 
My coming to you is not first and foremost. What's first and foremost in your life is that you live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It conveys the idea of behaving as a citizen of the Greek polis, which comes from the word, or which gives us the, the, the word political, or a city-state, or a free state. What Paul is writing when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's saying this manner of life, he's writing to the church in Philippi, which is a city-state of Rome. Don't think he didn't choose that word specifically at that time for them. They were proud to be a city-state of Rome. They wore that well. In fact, there was a time when Paul was in Philippi that they came and said, he's preaching another, this, this Jesus, and he's not getting in line with what we teach and believe as Romans. They actually said that to him. They're proud of that, being part of Rome. And Paul is saying, in the same way that being in Philippi, in the city there, being a city-state of Rome, that you're proud of that, more, even more so, only if, let me put something even higher than that, you should be so much wanting to reflect the fact that you are a citizen of heaven, that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Live your life in such a way that people would know, I am a citizen of heaven. That's the manner of life that we're to live. We have a heavenly citizenship. And this is absolutely essential for us. It's of the highest importance that you and I understand the bottom line in Christian living, that we conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of this world, because the world is passing away, church. We should walk in a way that is consistent with what we know. We should walk in a way that's consistent with what we are taught in the word. We should walk in a way that's consistent with what we hear preached we should walk in a way that's consistent with what we believe in the word of God. And when you do, listen, you walk with integrity. The world sees integrity. When you don't, when your lifestyle doesn't reflect what the Bible is teaching, you are disintegral. You're not integral. There's not integrity. It's disintegration. What happens when a Christian who professes something here and then lives a different way, you're clouding the water for the lost. They look at you and they go, wait a minute, you're saying this, but I'm seeing this. You're confusing me. And it doesn't make it attractive at all. If that's what it is, I don't want that. At least the world's in sin and they know it. They're being consistent they're not putting on a fake game. They're not playing a game. They're not acting as if they belong to God. They don't belong to God. They know they don't belong to God, so they're just living the way they want to live. That's, that has more, integ in, it's more, in, in, uh, more integral than a Christian who is, hip, is a hypocrite. So what is the manner of behavior that is worthy of being a Christian? Well, Paul gives us Four elements of worthy conduct of Christians, worthy behavior of Christians. Write these down. Number one, stand firm. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, in absent, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Standing firm is the idea. It literally is the concept of a, this is what Paul meant by it, a soldier who's been given a post and he stands at attention at that post. And when the enemy shows up, when the enemy tries to pressure him to move, he will not move from his post. He will hold the line. He'll do whatever he has to do to hold the line. That is what a believer is to look like living in this world. We stand firm on the word of God, on the truth of God's word. They're committed to stand firm. They won't change doctrinally. They won't move into terms of conduct where they are standing. They're not going to change who they are. They're not chameleon Christians. They change colors based on what room they're in, what environment they're in. The world sees that, and it's a turnoff, church. They need to see you standing firm. Yes, they will make fun of you. Yes, you'll be persecuted. 
but they'll know that you are integral in God, that what you say matches who you, li- who you are and how you live. Philippians 4.1, this was a concern. This standing firm was a concern even in Paul's day. Look what he says in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He had to come back and say it again to them because evidently there, he was concerned about that. Standing firm when you are under attack by this world, by your flesh or by Satan. Don't budge. Temptation is always going to be around you. Don't, don't give me this, this little sorry, sad tale of how you were tempted. Everybody's tempted every day, amen? Everybody is. We're all tempted. But when you're under pressure, that's when God shows up big. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I'll give you a second to get there, man. The old, the old pipes are starting to get loosened up, lubricated a little bit here. What time is it? Who cares? Okay. Look at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, let me tell you what that means. Paul is saying, you, you, you are to stand, but if you think you're doing the standing... If you think it's because you have the guts, the God-guided guts to stand, you are sadly mistaken. It is only standing out of a spirit of humility and brokenness, knowing God is the only one who can help me stand. I am utterly dependent on him to stand for him. You understand that? The Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the word of God in you. You should have it in you. Get it into you. And when you stand, you stand humbly and broken. Because if you don't, if you have, have pride in standing, you will fall. Okay, but then look what he says next. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So stop telling us how bad your temptation is. There is no new temptation out there that you're experiencing. All temptations are common to man. When it says man... It means all of us, okay? But look at the next three words. God is what? Faithful. Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. There's never been a temptation that's come to you that God is not faithful that he will give you your ability beyond the temptation to escape, that you may be able, look at this, to endure it. That means that you'll be able to stand under the pressure of the temptation. I don't have to give in to the temptation. If you stay in that state of humility and brokenness, knowing that the only way you can stand firm in the truth of God's word is by the work of God himself, by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, then you will be able to endure any pressure. But it's when we take our eyes off of God, off of his word, off of the truth, and we start to bolster ourselves and think about, well, I, I can do this, I, I've been here before, and we, we get boastful in ourselves. That's when you will fall. You won't be able to stand. The enemy will win in that day. So the battle for Christian unity has been around from the beginning. We need to, have, we need to be unified in purity. I wanna, uh, let's look at this. Let's look at verse, this is the second point, that we need to be unified in spirit. Not only are we to live a pure life, standing firm on the truth of God's word, let's be unified as a church, because Paul's writing to a whole church, right? He's not just writing a letter to a person. Be unified in spirit. Verse 27, let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There it is. It's not just standing firm alone. It's standing firm together. We stand in unity, supporting one another. But let's put this in the rightful order that Paul's given it. You first need to stand in purity. You, you stand in purity. You commit yourself to live a life that's worthy of the gospel that saved you. 
And then you join arms with brothers and sisters as you go through this life. You don't want to be disconnected from the body of Jesus Christ. You need each other. We need each other. I certainly need you. I can't tell you sitting there watching my live stream last week how much I wanted to be. I didn't have to preach. I just wanted to be present with you. How, how good it felt this morning to get up and feel what I was feeling and know that I can go to church today and I can be with the body of Christ today. This battle for Christian unity, this is not a new battle. This has always been in the church from the very beginning, from the inception. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Turn just one chapter over. Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, here it is. Look, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul didn't say that to frustrate us, where we would read it and go, well, that'll never happen. God would never challenge you to something that you couldn't do. In fact, that's a sin to do that. God said in Ephesians chapter 6, he said, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't say something to your kids that you, they can't do, they can't fulfill. Don't exasperate them. Well, why would our heavenly father exasperate us? We can do this, church. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That doesn't mean that we're perfect in everything. That doesn't mean that we agree on everything. It means that we agree on the things that matter the very most, the things that are part of the purposes of God. We come into an agreement. We stand together as the church. Paul had to address the issue of conflict within the church. It was a divided people. And he said, have the same mind, the same love, be in full accord with one mind. Listen, your fellow Christian is not your enemy. It is amazing the things that we allow to separate us. Even by how somebody dresses different causes us to want to pull back from them. Maybe their experience is so different. Maybe somebody has a little bit of a rough edge to them because they just got saved. They've been saved for 30 years and they still have a rough edge. We still should see them as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. The rest of that stuff is God's work in them, not ours. We've got to learn to love one another. You ask, where is the church divided today? Well, we're divided in all these little things that don't matter. Little, tiny, piddly things that we shouldn't even care about. But those things separate us. And then we're divided over big things that do matter. And, we, and some of those big things we shouldn't be divided over. Where's the church divided today? I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. I, I'm sure in a crowd this size, there are people here today who, who will side with the world on understanding love, on the definition of love. I, here's how I know that. Because there are whole churches. There are, not, not a few, many pastors today who want the church to love the world the way the world loves. So here's what that means. So you've got somebody who says, I'm gay, I'm a homosexual. Well, we should accept them, because they, they, or, or I'm, I, I want to get married, I'm gonna, I want to do a gay marriage. And the church says, well, they love each other. They love each other, how can we stand against that? I'll tell you how. Because not all love is from God. And the church does not need to be divided over love. We need to understand a biblical perspective, God's perspective on love. We need to be together on this. How will you be able to stand if you, one person looks at you know, the, the gender identity, the gender fluidity, fluidity today, and they kind of embrace it, and other people, you can't do that. You do remember what Jesus said. There's a reason why the world, listen to what he said, Jesus said this. There's a reason why the world hates me, because I declare that its deeds are evil. 
He wouldn't give in to their view on love. And that's the temptation today in the church. Churches are turning and they're changing and they're following. We have parachurch organizations in Vero Beach, Florida, Christian, Christian ministries that have caved in on this matter. They'll do anything to get a dollar to support the ministry. Friends, that is not of the Lord. That is not a, tr- Turn in your Bible, if you will. I want to take you to one passage. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 15. You want to see where the church is divided today? I'll show you exactly where it's divided. 1 John 2, 15. This is God through the apostle Peter, because the word of God, all of it is inspired of the Lord, right? So this is God's word. Look what he says, right out of the gate, verse 15, do not love the world. That's God saying there is a love that I don't want you to participate in. Not all love is equal. Not all love is the same. And as a Christian that's in the word of God, you should have enough discernment to know the difference. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love the way the world tells us we should love and still be in the love of the Father. The two are diametrically opposite. One is of righteous love, the other is unrighteous love. If you go to Romans chapter 1, you find that God handed them over, first of all, to sensuality. Then he handed them over to passions that are unnatural. Finally, it says, I handed them over to a debased mind, a mind that no longer can recognize the difference between my love and the world's love. They've embraced the world's love to the point that they can't even, they don't even know that the love that they're in is false, that it's error, that it can't bring hope or fulfillment. They don't even know it anymore. And the Bible clearly says God is storing up anger and wrath and judgment against those who take that position. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, here it is, three things. The desires of the flesh, I wish all the church would come into agreement over not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. That we would all come into agreement to try to live righteous, pure lives before God. Again, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect in it. Don't think that it's the that somehow if I fail, then I'm, you know, if I miss it one day, one hour, that I'm out. No, no. This is an ongoing struggle as long as you're clothed in flesh and blood. It's a real struggle. But you are to be bent towards the Lord, towards purity and righteousness at all times. You speak to one another in love. When you see a brother or sister that's starting to slip up, they're, they're, they're getting involved in a sin, you lovingly go to them and you say, hey, we're in this together. I see something here that, that I think is evil, that is wrong, and I, can, I love you. That's why I'm going to tell you, step back from that. If we need to start meeting together in order for us to, to help, if I can help you step away from that, I'll do it. I'm committed to you, brother. That is standing in unity for purity's sake. Don't let the flesh, and he says, then he says, and the desires of the eyes the desires of the eyes. Don't think for a second that only speaks to men. It does speak to men in a big way because lust, every man is tempted to lust every single day. But don't think for a second that there aren't things in this world, ladies, that you lust after. We all can have lust work its way into us if we're not careful. And then he says the pride of life. What it, to expand on that, it, it basically is saying where I find my fruitfulness, my joy, my 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 feelings of satisfaction on things of this life. That's the pride of life. I'm no longer finding 
my joy in God, I'm looking for happiness in things. As long as you can keep giving me things, I'm going to be happy. Keep it coming. Don't let these three things, don't let the flesh, don't let the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these things, look what it says, these are not from the Father. These are from the world. To love the world is not to love God. The church of Jesus Christ should not be divided on this. It doesn't mean that now we go out because we see the world doing things that are so diametrically opposite of God, but then we just embrace them for where they are because we want them so badly to like us. They'll never come to our church, Pastor, if we don't, if we don't give a little to them. Are you kidding? It used to be that these types of sins, these sexual sins, they used to be uh, covert they were hidden. And it started out, look, we, we don't want to mess with you and you, what you think marriage is. We just want to be able to marry ourselves, get married. Is that really the position they have today? It's not covert, it's overt. You have to accept us the way we are. No, as a church, we can't do that. We're standing true on the truth of God's word. So we're saddened because of their situation. We're saddened because of it. But we stand firm, Amen. Uh, uh, was it a week ago that I, I had come down my street and I was turning in and I noticed two ladies were walking up, they were just coming to my driveway and I was hoping they would come up my driveway. So I climbed out and I turned around towards them and yeah, they were coming towards, hey ladies, they came up, we introduced, we just want to tell you about a wonderful event that's taking place on Easter this year. I said, tell me about it. They said, well, all over the world, did you know that over, over, over 2 million people are going to be worshiping God together to remember Jesus' death on Easter? And I said, wow, wow. And she goes, isn't that wonderful? And you can be part. We just want to give you this information about that event locally. And I look at it, and of course, it's go to the kingdom hall of the Jehovah Witness. And I, they said, so we, we'd love to have you. And then they handed me some more information and said, and this will tell you all about who we are. I said, well, honestly, I don't think I need that information because when I was a young man, I studied very much in depth what you guys believe. And ladies, first of all, thank you for coming to my door. Thank you. You were created in the image of God. And so I respect you for that. I cannot respect what you're teaching because it's false. Oh, oh, um, no. How could you possibly think it's false when two million people gather on the same day to remember Jesus and his death? How can that, don't, 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 don't you see how, how successful that is? I said, ma'am, there's a lot of things that are happening in this world where many people gather, and it's a cult. It's not God at all. I said, remember what Jesus, as if they had read it. And I think one of them did. I said, because one lady wanted to interrupt me. And the other little older lady went, no, 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 let him talk, let him talk. And I said, remember when Jesus said, wide is the way that leads to death and many there are that find it. And that way, those people, the many that found it, thought it was going to heaven. And then he said, narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few will find it. So don't think for a second that because you have 2 million people that are going to be worshiping and remembering Jesus' death on Easter. And I said, now let me ask you a question before you go, because they were ready to pull out on me. And I said, I said but I was, I was totally respectful the whole time. I listened. I didn't just speak. But I know that's hard for you to believe. Anyway, so, so then at the end I said, can I just ask you guys a question? I said, are you born again? And the one lady that was so loud, the other lady, the older lady, the whole time she was like this. No, no let him talk. But the, the younger lady, probably in her early 40s, she, she, as soon as I said that, she goes, oh, yes, absolutely. I said, okay. I said, explain to me what that means to you. And she goes, 
well, we don't really have time right now. We've got to go. Because they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God who is God. They believe Jesus is a created being, much like Gabriel, one of the archangels. I wish I could have had that conversation with her, but I couldn't. That's okay. But see, but I do it in love. And that's the point here. That's what we're trying to say as Christians. The world is passing away. Look what it says. Away, along with this is ours. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, the will of God is that we would lovingly share the good news with people. And I did tell them, I said, ladies, honestly, Easter's not about the death of Jesus. That's the week that we just finished before Easter. That's Passover week. Easter's about the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. I said, but it's about the resurrection. And, and I love you, but you're wrong. You're getting that wrong. And I hope that God will open your eyes to see the truth. And that's where I left it. And then I said, are you born again? And that sent him running. And like that one bit. Let me give you the third point. Man, we've got to move. Okay, I'll go quick. Uh, number three, unified in purpose. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here it is, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a reason why we're striving side by side for the gospel. It's not enough to, listen, it's not enough for us to be unified for the sake of unity. That's how churches fall into sin. That's how churches fall away. Oh, we're all, a, we're the movement that I was part of my whole life. I've got grandfather, I've got uncles that were in the movement, preachers. And one of, and their theme song is unity. Unity. But the thing is, it's not about unity for unity's sake. It's about unity in purpose. What is the purpose? The gospel. We're unified for the gospel. Striving side by side. It means to struggle along with someone. That's what it should be like every week. We are struggling along together. It is a struggle in this world to share the gospel. It's, it's not easy. It's hard. Get honest with people when they say, how are you doing? And say, well, I'll be honest with you. I've been struggling this week. The reality is if you're sharing the gospel, you're going to struggle every week. Let somebody know about it. That's why we have women's ministry. So we can get honest. That's why we have men's ministry. That's why we've got people in our church who gather in their homes and they have little group meetings because the struggle's real. We struggle. If a church stands around and tries to have unity, you'll never get it. You have to be unified for a purpose, and the purpose in the Bible is the gospel, sharing and living the gospel. Everyone in church needs to see common goals. We all need to be striving for the common goal. I'm just telling you, as one of the shepherds of his flock, that's the common goal. That's the common goal. And the gospel, by the way, is not just sharing your faith, telling people who Jesus is. It's not just sharing the good news. It's also teaching them to obey everything that we've commanded you. So it's not just getting them to, to hear the gospel. Now we want to see them saved. We want to bring them to church where they can hear the teaching of the word of God. And it can sh change them. It can transform them. The last point is, number four, unified in suffering. And this kind of piggybacks on what we were just talking about. He said, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. But it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Listen to what Paul said. It has been granted to you. The word charis is almost, that's the picture of grace. This, this is a gift from God to you. What is a gift of God? That you would suffer for Christ's sake. Let me read it again. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When I was with you, you saw them attack me in your city because I shared the gospel. And now I'm in prison. You know about that. You should be engaged in the same thing. Paul's saying, why am I the only one that's locked up? 
That should not be the case for the body of Christ. We should all be sharing and suffering and striving together to live a pure life and to communicate the gospel with others. And because we do that, we will suffer. This is a very convicting message, isn't it? It's a challenge to us. And I can say to you, I'm just hiding behind the word of God. This is God's word speaking to you this morning. Are you suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Are there times where people look at you and go, oh boy, you're weird. Oh, he's one of those Jesus freaks. You should be thankful when they persecute you, when they speak all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Jesus said, you're blessed. That's a reason to have joy. Two amens. Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks for God, to God for you, brothers, as is right because of your faith. Your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is what Paul saw in the church in Thessalonica. Therefore, listen to what he said, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfast and faith in all your persecutions. You're remaining strong. You're staying steadfast. You're standing even though you're under persecution and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You're being afflicted because of your faith and you're enduring it. You're standing up under the pressure of it. Oh God, let that be our church in Indian River County. It would not be about our comfort. It would not be about what God can give me. It would not be seeing God as some kind of a genie in the bottle where I come forward or you come forward and I pray over you so that you can be blessed and have more money and have a bigger car and all this nonsense. Oh, that people would run forward and pray on their knees and say, Father, let me be faithful and steadfast in my suffering for you. Let me be that type of Christian. Listen, listen, this is the early church. This is what the early church is about. By the way, let me just tell you, the book of Acts is a transitional book. It is not a book on the doctrine of the church. It's a book of about leaving Christ, leaving the disciples who hand over the reins of the church to the elders. It's the transition that happened in the church. You don't build your life on a transition or teachings in a transition. You recognize the transition and you thank God for it, but then you come to the epistles where Paul begins to teach now to the church, this is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Build your life on that. That's what we're looking at. This is what you build your life on. I could go on, but I think we'll stop here. Matthew 13, 44. <coughs> Again, I said to you earlier that we're citizens of heaven. That means you are, if you're saved, you are in the kingdom of God. Listen, now. The kingdom of God is peace, joy, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Every Christian ought to have that all the time. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus gave a one-sentence parable. He described with other verses what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. And he said this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So first of all, this is a man who's a servant. He's working in a field for somebody who owns the field. And as he's digging, plodding along, he comes into a box that's hidden in the ground. And he opens it up, and it's a treasure. They didn't have banks back then. They just buried their stuff in the field. And so what does he do? He covers it back up. And he goes to the owner, and he says, I'd like to buy your field for you, from you. The owner tells him, okay, it'll cost you this much. And he's like, whoa. 
He takes, if you look at the scriptures, he takes everything that he has and he sells it. He surrenders everything in order that he might get the treasure. And he bought the field. But it doesn't say that in the text. Let me read it for you again. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. You and I had to, had to completely surrender to the work that God was doing in us to be saved. We didn't do it. God did it. Amen? All you could do is put your hands up. And then look at this. His joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the treasure. He bought the field. He bought the whole field to get the treasure. Getting saved is not about you just getting this happy life knowing that one day you'll go to heaven. You bought the field. You didn't buy it. God gave it to you as a gift. But you are committed not just to the heavenly home you're committed to everything in the kingdom of heaven and paul is saying part of the field which for this guy you know there were rocks there were weeds there were things that he probably wasn't thrilled about in that field but he bought the whole field you are called to suffer for jesus you are called to share the gospel and face the fallout with joy just like your Savior did, just like Paul did. You didn't just get the treasure of eternal life. You got the field. Amen? The whole kingdom. That's who we are. That's what we are to be about every day. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your love. I pray that this message comes in love, that it's not just teaching for the sake of trying to push people down. Lord, I would never want to condemn anybody here. You are at work in all of us, including in me, and I need it every day. I need your work. So we come in love as we study the Word of God. And we know that, God, you are always challenging us beyond our comfort zone. And the fact that we live in North America means that we have many comfort zones. Lord, one by one, pick at them. Dig deeper. Take a pickaxe and go to work in us. Break off chunks that, Lord, reflect more of the world than they do you. May we become a pure, holy people. May we come into agreement with one another over the things that matter. May we, have a, may we strive together in the gospel. That's our purpose. And, Lord, may we be willing to stand together as we suffer for the name of Jesus. Let us be that church. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Friends, we're going to invite the elders and the prayer partners to come up front. If you ever need any prayer at all, that's why they're standing in the front. They'll pray with you about any matter going on. We just want to agree with you, encourage you, pray with you. And that's, that's there. If you today God has spoken to your heart and you want to learn more about the gospel, talk to these folks. They'll share the gospel. You can be saved. If God's probing and picking at you right now, do it. Come forward. Don't go back. The rest of us, let's fellowship. Before you walk out, make sure you greet someone and love them. Ask them how their week went. Tell them to pray for you that you'd be a faithful witness this week, okay? God bless each of you. Have a great day in the Lord.